Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Timothy Pollack, Professor of Entrepreneurship at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. We'll be discussing his article, Not Like the Rest of Us, How CEO Celebrity Affects Quarterly Earnings Call Language, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Management. The article is co-written with Roberto Ragazzino, Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at Nova School of Business and Economics, and Dane Blevins, Associate Professor of Management at the University of Central Florida. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Tim, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thanks for having me. Tim, as I was looking at some recently published pieces or forthcoming pieces, the title of this article really caught my eye. I think the celebrity CEO is a figure that has been very much in the popular and the scholarly imagination, at least in the corporate law world that I inhabit, thinking particularly about one celebrity CEO who seems to be in the news pretty much every day. So I wondered if we could level set with just what is a celebrity CEO? How are they different from regular CEOs? And you even divide them between A-list and B-list celebrities in the paper. Could you tell me about that division between celebrity CEOs and non-celebrity CEOs, and then even that gradation within CEOs, the A-list and the B-list? Celebrity CEOs are a media construct. Lee Iacocca was really, I think, the first what we would call celebrity CEO, certainly of the modern era. Prior to that, you may have known the names of a couple CEOs, but you didn't know that much about them. You didn't have that much strong feelings about them. But Lee Iacocca put himself out there in a way, representing Chrysler, that the media glommed onto. And so we got lots of stories, not just about what he was doing as CEO, what Chrysler was doing, but stories about him, his background, his colorful exploits all these kinds of stuff. So he became a character in his own right. And the media needs to create dramatic narratives. So they don't tell false stories, but they like to heighten certain aspects of it and create a dramatized reality. So they're trying to provide the news in a way that's going to be interesting and engage audiences. And for that, they need a protagonist. And oftentimes what they've been doing more frequently is making the CEO that protagonist in the story. So they view them with these responsibilities and these skills and abilities for different kinds of outcomes and provide us lots of personal details about them. There's no reason to know why a CEO is six foot two and has weavy silver hair, other than the fact that we want these details about them so we can live vicariously through their exploits. And so they create these celebrity CEOs and they're celebrities because we react positively to them with these positive emotional responses to them. We want to know about them, what they do, how they behave. And we use them vicariously for a lot of different reasons to live out fantasies, to have different experiences which is how we use celebrity more conventionally like actors and so forth and sports heroes. So the media has created these folks and we've been interested in studying them for a long time. I've been working on celebrity CEO and CEO research for almost 20 years now. And so it's been a real interesting topic to me as far as the A-list and B-list celebrities. Initially, we were just looking at if somebody is celebrity or not, but even within the range of actors who can be celebrities, just like you can separate somebody like Jamie Farr, who played Corporal Klinger on MASH, from somebody like Jack Nicholson or Russell Crowe, there's certain other CEO celebrities for the household names are the ones that everybody knows, like the person you were referring to earlier, who I'm guessing's last name rhymes with Husk, but that we all know who they are. We have strong feelings about, but to be clear, strong, positive feelings. To be a celebrity is to be celebrated, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other people who can have strong, negative 
emotions about somebody, and those we refer to as infamous because when we think about emotions, they actually lie in two different continuous. We don't go from negative to positive. They go from neutral to positive and on a separate continuum from neutral to negative. So the same actor can instill both positive and negative strong emotional responses from different audiences. So somebody can be a celebrity if they're universally loved, but they can also be both a celebrity and infamous if some people love them and some people hate them. And we're interested in how these positive emotional responses of celebrity of individuals as opposed to their infamy affects a different range of, of outcomes. And in this study, we're looking at how they affect the language that CEOs use. Before delving into your paper, I'd like to talk about this long-term research agenda that you've had, this focus of looking at celebrity CEOs. Could you talk to us about why celebrity CEOs are an important topic for study in terms of corporate communications, corporate governance, the capital markets? Why are celebrity CEOs an important and salient domain for your research? I actually look at both at celebrity CEOs and celebrity firms. So my colleagues and I have studied both. But the idea that celebrity creates these positive emotional responses, we think of celebrity as one of a class of intangible assets, call them social approval assets, things like reputation, status, legitimacy that can create value for firms that firms don't directly own because they exist in the relationship with the firm and their audiences. So the audiences confer them upon the firms or upon the individual actors like the CEOs, and they can be used to create value. And I do a lot of research on all these different kinds of social valuations or social approval assets. And so I've been really interested in these dynamics. How do they relate to each other? How do they create value for firms? And one of the interesting things about celebrity CEOs is a lot of the prior research has shown that they create more value for the CEO themselves than they have created for the firm. I've been trying to tease this out and understand both what are the consequences of having a celebrity CEO or being a celebrity firm for different firm outcomes, but then also what are the antecedents of celebrity and why are some CEOs celebrities and not others? And I've had other recent research on celebrity CEOs published on that as well. So we started out with this for the firm celebrity, which kind of gets off track from our topic today, but really happened during the late 90s during the dot-com boom when a colleague and I made the observation that the media treats these companies like rock stars. And that's what led us to thinking about firms as celebrities. And, and then I do a lot of work in corporate governance. So of course, we were looking at celebrity CEOs because there was many of those at the time too. And just looking at them at both levels and the relationships among them are what driven what I've been interested in for the last 20 years. This paper is focused on the celebrity CEO in the context of the quarterly earnings call. Could you talk about what research questions really motivated this study? Why might those questions or the answers to those questions be important? And where does this study fit into the existing literature, either work that you've done or work that others have done in the management field? There's been work done on the celebrities' outcomes and generally found that the CEOs benefit more. They get higher pay. They get more access to board seats. They're invited to write books and do all these other kinds of things that generate more value for them than they do for the firms. And as interesting exploring this further, because we talk about celebrity as resulting in part from the media's focus on an elevation of their non-conforming actions, things that make them stand out and be different. But we don't know a lot about the relationship for a CEO celebrity and how it shapes their specific behaviors, especially once they achieve celebrity and how these behaviors can have consequences for firms. There's been other research that looks at how language affects different firm outcomes. So how analysts react to the different types of language used in earnings calls, how perceived uncertainty influences others' reactions, and how language affects whether or not competitors will take competitive actions against other firms. So we know that the language attributes that CEOs use 
matter, but we didn't know how does being a celebrity CEO affect the types of language that the CEOs may use. And that's what we were really interested in. Does being a celebrity lead CEOs to use language in different ways that we know has consequences for firm outcomes? And so it's a little bit more of an indirect path rather than looking at something a celebrity does direct and then firm performance or some reaction of investors or some other outcome that they may have. So it's more of an indirect mechanism through the language use. And so that's what we were exploring here. Could you give a brief around the empirical design for this study and the methods that you used? What exactly were you testing and how are you doing that? We used a database called Seeking Alpha. It's a crowdsourced, created public database of financial information about companies. And what we were using was their archive of earnings call transcripts. So for quite a while now, all quarterly earnings calls have been recorded and have been transcribed. And Seeking Alpha has over 100,000 of them that we looked at for our initial potential sample. And so that was a great trove for us. One of the cool things about this database is that they identify who each individual speaker is on the earnings call. So we were able to actually take this data and we stripped out the operators, but we were able to separate what the analyst questions were from the different executive speakers that we could identify specifically the CEO and what the CEO said as opposed to what other people on the call were saying. So we had a great level of specificity here that you haven't seen a lot of other studies. So that was pretty exciting to us. And then what we had to do was to create our overall sample. We first identified who the celebrity CEOs were in the database that we had earnings call data on. And then we created a match sample of other firms with non-celebrity CEOs that we could then use that sample to take their earnings call information and take their transcripts and look for systematic differences in their language use controlling for a bunch of other factors. That's the basic idea of how we structured our samples. So the first thing we had to do is figure out who are the celebrity CEOs. To do that, we went to the 14 largest newspapers by circulation in the country and we downloaded about 41,000 articles on all the CEOs we could find coverage on. And contrary to what most people think most CEOs have no media coverage. Most CEOs get no coverage. A smaller group gets some smaller amount of coverage. Oftentimes it may be more in local newspapers, things like that. And it's a really very few CEOs who get wide national coverage and get lots of coverage in the press. So the data is really skewed. And this is true with all social valuations. There are a few actors who get a ton of attention and then the rest get little or none. So we collected all this media data and then we had to content analyze it and we create our celebrity measure based on two dimensions. So celebrity is based on two things. One is the volume or attention, the size of the audience that they get. So the, so we looked at the volume of media attention, how many articles they were in. And then the other is the positive emotional language that's used to describe what they do. And so we content analyzed all these articles for the proportion of emotional language that was positive. So we coded for all positive emotion words, negative emotion words, and then took the proportion of those total emotion words that were positive, And we identified celebrity CEO using those dimensions. So we separated A-list and B-list. And you'd asked about that earlier. So we had to figure out, okay, who are the ones who are the A-listers who get the most media attention, who ever, most people are going to be more likely to know. And then who are the B-listers who get more media attention than other CEOs, but not as much as the A-listers because we expected to be some systematic differences between them and between the celebrities and non-celebrities. How we operationalized it was looking at the data distribution. And in this case, what the best cuts seem to be if you were more than one standard deviation 
deviation above the median amount of coverage and positive emotional language. They had to be high on both dimensions. Then you were an A-lister. And if you're between the median and one standard deviation above on both dimensions, you were a B-list celebrity and then all the restaurant celebrities. Then once we identified them, we did a matching based upon the characteristics of the firm. So we want to try to rule out as many differences as possible with the design of the study. And so we picked firms that had the same industry index. They had to be on the same exchange. They had to be of the same size within about 25% of each other and it had to be the same year and same quarter in which the call occurred. So we tried to match on three dimensions and then size had to be within 25% of the celebrity firm plus or minus. We found between one and and 10 matches for each firm. And that became our final sample. And then we use that to conduct our analyses. What that means is every time if we tried to use a different way of operationalizing celebrity, so if we played with different dimensions that we recreated our sample every time based upon who was identified as celebrities so that we could keep that comparability in the sample. What were some of your key findings from this process? looked at four language attributes. So language attributes are the characteristics other than the specific content of what's being said. And we looked at the relative positivities. Did they use more positive than negative language? The relative concreteness, did they use more concrete versus abstract language? The relative certainty, do they use more certain versus uncertain language? And the relative self-regarding language, they use more language that referred to themselves like first person personal pronouns versus person or other regarding language. We found was that celebrity CEOs, A-listers use more of all, all these things, so more relative positivity, concreteness, certainty, and self-regarding language than non-celebrities, and that they also use more than B-listers on all four dimensions. The B-list celebrities, we found that they consistently use more self-regarding language than non-celebrities, depending on the newspapers that we included, because we actually found that there were some differences, but in general, they also had used more relative positivity and more relative certainty, but there's no difference on the concreteness. So that was the basic findings. We found some other interesting things. We looked at some other language attributes out of curiosity. We found that, that they also tended to use more achievement language and less tentative language, both A-list and B-list celebrities. And we were able to look at some CEOs before they became a celebrity and then after, and we found significant differences in their language use once they became became a celebrity, even if at later times they're no longer considered a celebrity because we recode the media for the most recent four quarters every year. Once they had become a celebrity, they still use language consistent with being a celebrity. So becoming a celebrity in many walks of life might change a person. And we see that really revealed in some of your data. Could you talk about the implications of this study for corporate governance, for investors, for capital markets? What might we take from this? One of the things we show is that celebrity CEOs behave can create value for firms. So they use language in ways that are going to positively influence markets. So this is to show that there are some benefits to firms from having celebrity CEOs. One of the really interesting things for corporate governance and corporate communications is that one of the ways celebrity creates value is by reducing perceived uncertainty through their language use. So even though the absolute levels of uncertainty may not differ, they may not be any less, People are going to, have to be more confident and perceive that they are less uncertain about what the firm's going to do, whether or not they're going to be successful because of the confidence and the authority that the CEO projects through their language use. And a lot of this, we argue, is unconscious. So it's not like the CEOs are saying, OK, I'm going to use these terms more frequently because this is happening in the Q&A of the earnings calls. So the earnings calls have two parts. There's a scripted part and then there's an unscripted part where they're answering questions. We only analyze the unscripted part because that way we're getting the more spontaneous 
simultaneous reactions where they're not necessarily thinking about everything they're going to say, and they can say a variety of different things, and some often do. So looking at this helped us understand how celebrity affects their language use. And then also the other benefit here for corporate communications research and governance research is that a lot of times all the prior research has typically assumed rational information processing. So the audiences, the analysts, then others are going to be using rational means to assess what's being said. We're showing how affective information processing, because we process information differently when it's emotional. We create broader, more holistic pictures, react more quickly. We tend to tag things with more images that are tied with emotions that may or may not be accurate depictions. But that affective information processing can affect analysts and others' behaviors and outcomes. Are there any key takeaways or closing thoughts you'd like listeners to have? And this is an area of, I'm guessing, continued interest and focus for you. Are there future research questions that this study has generated for you that you'd like to tackle? Roberto and Dana and I also have some other data on the dynamics of audience calls. So how do people treat them? Who attends? How much does the CEO get to talk relative to others? How many questions they receive? That kind of thing. And so understanding how people treat celebrity CEOs in addition to how they use language is something that I'm interested in. I just more generally think that trying to get financial types to understand that they have emotions too, and that their emotions affect their perceptions or behaviors a lot more than they think they do is another, I think, important takeaway, but also has been an ongoing area of my research. I'm very interested in what we call the social construction of markets, how social behaviors and dynamics and interactions and cognitive processes influence the structure and the dynamics of financial markets and competitive markets. And so this feeds in with that. I'm going to be continuing to do work in that area as well. Our guest today has been Timothy Pollack, professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. We've discussed his article, Not Like the Rest of Us, How CEO Celebrity Affects Quarterly Earnings Call Language, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Management. The article is co-authored with Roberto Ragazzino, professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at Nova School of Business and Economics, and Dane Blevins, associate professor of management at the University of Central Florida. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Tim, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.